Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. Professor Simon Jackman has kept an eye on politics for most of his life. He's a Brisbane boy who grew up in the city's northern suburbs before making a name in the United States through his study of political science. For most of his academic career, Simon was Professor of Political Science and Statistics at Stanford University. He served as a Principal Investigator of the American National Election Studies, the world's longest-running and most authoritative survey of political behaviour and attitudes. Simon returned to Australia in 2016 to take up the role of CEO at the United States Study Centre, a role he completed this year. He's now a professor at the University of Sydney and he is an expert on voter behaviour both at home and abroad. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to this edition of Sourced. Professor Simon Jackman, welcome to Sourced. It's great to have you on. We go a long way back. We grew up in the same suburb, went to the same school, and it's small town Brisbane at its best. It's great to have you on. Well, Michael, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Um, and shout out to the 4017. It's great to have you on Sourced, Simon, just after a federal election. But I just want to start with talking about the experience you had for so many years in the US, living there through the rise of Barack Obama, the rise of Donald Trump and so many other things. What comparisons do you have now living back here between elections in the US and Australia? Um, There's so many cuts at that, Michael. Um, I think the single biggest thing when it comes to politics is probably the fact that Australia has compulsory voting it fundamentally changes the nature of campaigning and of politicking, if, if you will, yeah. uh, the rest of the time. In America, um, because it's voluntary to vote, you've got to really energize people to vote. And often that means making quite emotional appeals, things that they're going to get really stirred up by both good and bad, I'm afraid. Yep. And, and I think that adds a character to American politics that, um, we, we simply don't have here. In Australia, just about, right, voter turnout is, what, 91, 92, 93%. Yeah. Um, and the task for a political party is far less getting people to the polls. It's persuading them, giving them a reason to vote for one side or the other. So I think that just creates a, a really important sort of uh, difference in the way politics is conducted so on a similar thread to that simon i sometimes think about the compliance in our country look at the covid vaccinations and in queensland you know hitting 90 percent of people who've got their covid vaccinations it's obviously different to other parts of the world and certainly it's higher than the united states having lived there and living back here now 
What are your sort of thoughts on, I guess, the way Australians behave in that sense, how compliant we are uh, or not, and how that impacts <laughs> on uh, elections? Yeah, it, it's a great observation. Um, it's emblematic, that difference on the COVID vaccination rates. It's emblematic of a broader cultural difference between the two countries. And, and um, um, America is founded in revolution, in yeah. violent revolution, an, an uprising against uh, the British crown. Um, Australia is a creation of the British administrative state, um, um, that effectively their Bureau of Corrections, their Department of Prisons. Um, and that sets in train two very different paths of political development. In the United States, as Kim Beasley once succinctly put it, um, Americans care about freedom, Australians care about fairness. Right. And for Australians, we're not afraid of government. In fact, they ought to do something about that is often what you'll hear Australians say about a problem. The they, in every being federal, state or local government, we, we look to government much more instinctively uh, as, as a uh, institution to solve all sorts of problems yeah. far more readily and far more in a, in a friendly, accommodating way that, than they do in, in not all of the United States, but in huge chunks of the United States. The last thing I'd add to that is the legacy of the Civil War. Yeah. America went to war with itself on the question of, 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 uh, of slavery. Um, and, and that pitted um, the, the federal government, the union, against breakaway states. And Australia's never had uh, anything remotely close to that and the deep scars it embeds in sort of the cultural memory of certain regions of the country where the federal government um, as recently as 140 years ago, 160 years ago, now time marches on, um, um, invaded, um, um, uh, quelled uh, the rights of, uh, through violent means of, yeah. of regions and, and localities to, to go their own way. And, and, and that, that creates a dynamic where, you know, as much as Queensland and Western Australia might talk about you know, shake the finger at Canberra and that gets a lot of political mileage, right? Uh, as we all know. Yeah. Um, it's just nothing like the suspicion um, of all levels of government, but often, you know, the, you know, what's the old joke? Um, the, what's the worst thing you can say in certain parts of the United States? Hi, I'm from Washington. I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> you know, they just, it's a fundamentally different relationship between citizens and, and certainly the federal government in the United States and in Australia. So we finished an election last weekend. They're still counting on going. But what do we know about Australia this week, Simon Jackman, that we maybe didn't know about <laughs> Australia last week? There's an easy question. Um, that we're moving on on climate. Um, that we now have majorities in both chambers of the federal parliament that will vote um, for um, quite uh, far-reaching climate policies. Um, that. And that position has been endorsed um, by a majority of the electorate pretty resoundingly. Um, that that um, it's just no longer. I, th I think the path back for the coalition politically, they have to reconcile themselves to the fact that the, the country is moving on on certainly on that issue, um, and and perhaps some others as well. Uh, uh, gender equality, 
perhaps especially in politics itself. I actually think the private sector and and other elements of Australian society are sort of quite um, settled with respect to gender equality in the workplace and and respect in the workplace. It's really just the federal parliament. But but just as Gough Whitlam uh, got the Labor Party in 1969 to drop its opposition for the federal government providing aid to non-government schools, uh, just as John Howard in between 1993 and 1996 got the coalition to drop its opposition to Medicare, I think we're at a, an inflection point where the devastation wrought on uh, the coalition parties, or the Liberal Party in particular in this last election, their way back is to, I think, reconcile themselves to uh, a new approach to climate and energy policy in this country um, because I think the voters, um, particularly in seats that the Liberal Party needs to win if they're ever to form government, those voters have moved on. And, and that was one of the biggest, I think, single biggest messages out of um, last weekend. So how do you do that then if you're a coalition and you rely on those votes from the National Party? And given in some of those electorates, we saw a swing towards the National Party members who obviously don't have the same outlook on climate as some other parties. How do you do that if you're a Liberal Party? It's diabolical, Michael. I, th- I think it's, it's, it's extremely difficult. And gee, the way this issue breaks parties and, and destroys right, coalitions and political careers, both personally and, and institutionally, it's now, you know, we might argue that it cost, you know, it was, it was the uh, really hurt the Labor Party when they were last in government, uh, uh, Rudd Gillard Rudd, yeah. uh, the opposition to um, uh, uh, carbon taxes back then and mining tax. Um, but now I think it's the coalition's turn to have their reckoning with the way this issue, A, will not go away, and, and B, is, is just, they need to find an accommodation. I don't know what it is. Now, to some extent, they may be the beneficiaries of a term in opposition and where they get to say, there's no point fighting over this anymore. Yep. Um, just as John Howard could say to uh, a, a Liberal Party that had been in opposition for 13 years by 1996, um, are we going to keep having this fight over policy that got bedded down in the 70s and the 80s in Australia, or are we going to move on and find a way to accommodate it and, and find other issues to, to, to fight on? And I think that's the journey that the Liberal Party and the National Party, the coalition, may be on over the next little while. That is not going to be an easy ride by any means, um, but I think that the... the coming up to an accommodation and the ball is not in their court on this by the way it's so much depends on the policies that are put forward by the the labor government and 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 how they play out on the ground so to speak but um i think it's you know they have to i think you know accept i think that there's a new consensus in australian society more broadly and the issue is not whether we go down this pathway but how we do it and how quickly and with what sort of, frankly, cross-subsidies and, and payoffs to, uh, you know, parts of the economy that, that at least in the short term to medium term could be on the, on the losing side of a, of a decarbonisation of the Australian economy. 
So let's maybe break that down to Queensland because you know you grew up here, you know Queensland very well. We saw the results last week across the state with their own differences between some seats. How unique, Simon, is Queensland from a voting viewpoint? And you've obviously got experience in many states in the US and you know the states here. <laughs> What's Queensland like? Uh, I thought I knew Queensland until <laughs> um, until last weekend. I mean, the idea that Ryan and Griffith are now green seats that, that that the next breakthrough for the Greens outside of holding a House of Rep seat in Melbourne would be not one but two seats um, south of the river um, in, in Brisbane. I, I didn't see that coming. That's um, not the Brisbane you touch, grew up in? Um, no, it is not the Brisbane I grew up in, uh, suffice to say. Um, um, and, 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 and that gets to a key observation about the state. Um, uh, the southeast has become cosmopolitan, much more progressive than it was when I was a kid uh, or, or a young adult. Uh, and I think, you know, those seats, as I said in some media on election night, um, um, the People's Republic of Newtown or the People's Republic of Fitzroy would find themselves very much at home in West End and, and, and even perhaps beyond, you know, um, into that ring of sort of slightly better off suburbs that have really embraced, um, um, you know, uh, river the river city sort of motif that defines Brisbane. Um, it's a it's a far more cosmopolitan and lifestyle oriented uh, place. It's also the knowledge economy is huge in those electorates, largely on the back of sort of the incredible growth of um, uh, biological sciences um, uh, around both in industry, but also uh, funded by the state government and the University of Queensland. So there's a profound change in the economy, if you will, of, 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 of Brisbane in particular. But, but the, the point about Queensland is that that's the southeast. And mm. unlike almost any other state in Australia, it's a tire, the diversity of Queensland um, remains remarkable. You can then um, remember that it's um, Queensland that gave us uh, Pauline Hanson and, and not from um, uh, Longreach or Rockhampton, but from Oxley. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. um, you, you will see in state election results, there's this, you take a compass, you center it on uh, the Brisbane GPO and you do three hours driving time and you draw an arc and you're really sweeping out a real hotbed of support for non-conventional, you know, non-major political parties. Yeah. I do extremely well in that band. And then you go, you know, the changing economies of, uh, of Cairns is a very different place than it was uh, uh, when I was a kid, the tourism economy up there is sort of really transforming uh, that place. It's not quite, um, you know, Byron Bay or anything like that, where they routinely vote for Labor and Green candidates. They're just over the border um, in northern New South Wales. But um, there's a lot of change happening uh, in the far north um, of, of, of Queensland as well. But, but the original point, though, and, and the key point, um, the diversity of Queensland will do your head in. Um, <laughs> it, there's just nothing like it in Australian politics. And drawing an analogy with the United States, you know, I, I do have to reach for, you know, often people say Texas or people will say Florida because they're perhaps the state they're the most familiar with. Um, the analogies do start to break down because of the racial diversity of, 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 of those states. Um, 
with our Spanish speakers and African-American populations. But with that caveat, I actually forward, uh, I would offer up at uh, um, Georgia, where the, um, in my decades in the United States, the way the city of Atlanta became wealthier and a business center and much more forward looking, that reminded me of the development of the southeast corner of, of, Bruce, of, of yeah. Queensland. Um, Atlanta had so many, when I went there, it just reminded me so much of Brisbane's evolution through the 80s and the 90s in particular. And so I'd, I'd reach for uh, uh, Georgia, um, but there's, but you know, once once I'm out in you know Western Queensland, I'm, I'm thinking West Texas, and then when I'm when I'm um, when I'm down the Gold Coast, um, I'm thinking Florida, Fort Lauderdale, uh, and and Miami. Um, and again, it just speaks to how diverse a place Queensland is economically, culturally, and hence politically. So there are election reviews going on at the moment, Simon, and. Those election reviews will obviously have some findings about what happened last weekend and the lead up to that. So if you're then going to say, well, look, here's what we've learned and here's a way that we can then engage with Queensland voters in the months and years to come, what do you do? How do you engage with Queensland voters when you've outlined some of those differences? Um, Well, look, um, right now the coalition holds more seats than Labor in Queensland. And if there's any work to do, frankly, uh, for a political party um, in, in Queensland, it's probably, there's probably, you know, Labor's got to look at it and go, there's got to be more upside for us there. Uh, perhaps immediately they'd be thinking of how do we, how do we take back Griffith, which was um, Kevin Rudd's seat, mm. for crying out loud, you know. Um, all these seats that used to belong to prime ministers, uh, both on the Liberal side and, and, in, and in the case of Griffith, the Labor side, going in other directions. Um, it's difficult for the coalition in the, in the short term, though, to, to, to pick up gains. Um, I, I think one observation, don't underestimate people in the national media, underestimate Peter Dutton. Um, I know Peter Dutton. Um, I, 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 when I was running the US Study Center, um, I interacted with, with Peter Dutton regularly. Um, up close and personal, he is a very different person to the image um, you get of him in the parliament or um, or through the TV screen. Um, he will struggle given, you know, most of Australia has an image in their mind and a view of Peter Dutton. Um, he will struggle in the public domain, but I think he will be an extremely effective operator uh, trying to move, and, and he's pragmatic enough, um, and this is his opportunity, and he will seize it as, a, as a, an attempt to, to rebuild um, and, and to pivot as best he can uh, the coalition into a sort of this, you know, from where it is to where it needs to be. Um, keep an eye on that space in particular, and that will be Queensland, you know, the, the Queensland MPs now constitute a larger portion of the coalition party room than I think at any time. Uh, in, in Australian political history. And, and so it, it's going to be an interesting uh, period, but, but Dutton's leadership and what that implies for, I think, some of his allies, Queensland, other, other members of parliament from Queensland, they will be thrust in positions of, of leadership on, the, on a decimated coalition um, side of the parliament, uh, sh- shadow treasury, shadow defence, shadow 
attorney general, you know, all these roles that you need to fill. Um, keep an eye on Dutton. I think he's going to surpass expectations as he goes about that task, both front of house, but critically um, back of house. That's, that's, that's perhaps one observation, but it, opposition sucks because the ball's not in your court. <laughs> and, and so much of what they're going to be doing, I think, will be reactive. It'll, so much will depend on how Labor trots out a climate policy, uh, both the substance of it, but also the optics and the politics of it. And, and, and then, you know, that serve, and then, you know, it'll be the coalitions and a Queensland-heavy coalition, uh, it'll be their challenge uh, to return serve. And you mentioned Peter Dutton and some of the mixed views in general public and media, but even his critics would have to acknowledge the fact he's held that seat now of Dixon for some time and through different political That's waves. Right. He's obviously very yep. effective on the ground when he's had uh, opposition in there trying to unseat him. So there's something about him and that seat that works well. Yeah, he's a, he's a great match for Dixon. Um, I, I don't think, like, all the best MPs, the best operators never take their seat for granted. Uh, Wayne Swan um, did a great job shoring up Lily, right? He lost it. He was out. He lost it when I was a cadet journalist at the Northside <laughs> Chronicle, Simon. I was uh, a young journalist, and I can tell you in that time in which he didn't have the seat, I reckon he rang me once a week. Uh, to tell yeah. me about things in the local community. So, yes, he never stopped Wayne Swan, even when he didn't hold the yeah. seat. Yeah, and, and and I think we don't see it, but I think um, Dutton worked that seat really, really hard. You're right, he's, they've thrown the kitchen sink at him in successive elections. I'm old enough, and we're, all, we're both old enough. I remember it was held by um, Michael Labarch yeah. um, and, um, and Cheryl Curnow, right? Yeah. Um, um, her, her uh, interlude in the House of Representatives out there. So it has gone, you know, in, in, in recent decades at least, but it's also a part of um, the greater Brisbane area where um, it's a different sort of voter. They're not right. So we're talking pushing out into that band of suburbs and exurbia, you'd call it, in America. That's fertile ground for a politician um, um, like Peter Dutton. It's not Brisbane. It's not Lily. Uh, it's not even Petrie for that yeah. matter. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different again. Um, and so, look, uh, Peter's um, a very good fit for the electorate. Um, um, he's, he's, I don't think he's ever lost touch with that. And I think um, his voters in that electorate, um, they're looking at his performance in those portfolios he had in the coalition government, Home Affairs and Defence, very much through a local prism, and I think very much approve of, of, of the way he's done business. The challenge for Peter Dutton is to now be a, a, a national leader and, uh, and not a minister for defence, uh, a minister for home affairs and these security-facing uh, sort of roles. Um, but what does, um, what does it look like to be a leader of, a, of not just the opposition, but of a decimated opposition? coming off an extremely low base. Um, um, Dutton has always wanted, I think, the leadership, and boy, boy, he's got it now, but in, in, in amazing circumstances. But um, I think he'll, he'll, he'll relish the challenge. 
Simon, we talk a lot on our podcast about younger Australians and in this occasion younger voters and the way that they're not engaging with traditional media the way that we did when we grew up. I mean, they've got so many options. So therefore they're getting information in different ways, so many entertainment options available to them. They're not sitting down watching the 6pm news or they're not seeing printed papers as much. Now, does that mean they're less informed or less engaged? And how does it, I guess, influence how they vote? Um, I, there's very little evidence to suggest that they're less informed. Um, they are a little less engaged um, when we, you know, use survey measures that, you know, asking these questions the same way now for, for decades. Um, and I think that reflects the, the lack of engagement or the decline in engagement um, just reflects the, the vast array of choices, um, you know, competing for their attention. Um, and, and we all know, I, I don't need to elaborate uh, on that. They're competing for, adult, you know, for older people's attention. Yeah, too. that's right. Um, um, but for, um, the, for, the, for, the, for the kid or the young voter, who is inclined um, to find information, um, boy, oh boy, there's more, the ability to consume politics, right, to go read and either through Twitter that's sort of creating a, a feed for you that is perhaps, you know, birds of a feather, um, perhaps, you know, you're hearing things you already believe. But if you're of a mind to, uh, or even if you're not of a mind to, just the, you know, the ubiquity of it through your browsing experience, um, even as a passive um, sort of, um, you know, consumer of, political, of politics, um, um, I, I actually think there's more available and more to connect to than ever. The other thing is, let's not underestimate how animated young people are by the climate change issue. Um, and they have some incredible, and, and gender, they have some incredibly powerful advocates who are their age, not your age or yeah. mine. Yeah. And, and, and I think um, using online technologies as a way to get informed and to be close and, to, and, and, and that emotional investment in the issue. Um, so I think it's really uneven. I think politics as usual, yeah, it doesn't look like that and they're not engaging. And, and, and you know, I think major parties just sound so passe and boring, I think it's part of why doing something different, voting for the Greens or voting for um, a teal candidate uh, and, and doing something, using that opportunity of an election, a federal election that comes around every three years to really make a statement about the issues um, they care about and the displeasure that major parties perhaps aren't doing enough on them. Um, I think young people, I think once we get into the data a little more, we'll see that this election Boy, oh boy, that that surge towards um, you know non-major parties. Um, that younger voters were a really big piece of that. It was a great cycle for the Greens. Their vote um, went up um, a fair bit in relative terms, and I think we'll find that that's being driven, as it almost always is, for the Green vote powerfully by people under the age of thirty. You mentioned uh, earlier on about the difference in the US and Australia. One big difference was the fact that there's compulsory voting here and there's not in the US. There's, so there's different appeals to voters there, Simon. 
where are we at in Australia in terms of our tactics to reach out to some of these groups on so many different platforms they're on? They're on YouTube and TikTok and these different places. How are we placed in Australia in terms of uh, engaging with them as opposed to, say, in the US? Oh, I think, look, Australia lags the US by a couple of years in these sort of um, marketing and campaigning technologies. But, um, but, you know, um, online was huge this cycle. It was arguably bigger than mainstream media in terms of spend by, by certainly by the, by the majors, by the Climate 200 and the group. And, and the Greens, I think, have, have been very innovative because they know their vote skews young. Um, they've long been um, quite innovative in using, you know, non-traditional. We might, you know, it's almost time to stop calling them non-traditional. Yeah. <laughs> but um, um, you know, I think I think this cycle, once once the dust settles and we see the total spend um, um, online, is 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 huge. And and it's funny because the issues that get talked about, you know, we've got this amazing ability with online to uh, track uh, what stories are being forwarded and shared on yep. Facebook or on Insta or, or, or the other platforms. And there's almost two different campaigns in the climate and gender issues and integrity, the three big issues that, that, uh, that defined the, the teal movement, if you will. They, they, they powered online. And um, meanwhile, the mainstream media was covering it like a pretty conventional Australian election the media pack following the leaders around and trying to get Albo in another gotcha moment. And, but, but it was almost like online, I think the parties recognized this too, is it was sort of almost a different conversation yeah. uh, was happening both among people voting for change and, and people wanting to stay uh, with the government. So um, we're, we're way down the runway. Australia, you know, internet penetration in Australia and we're, we're, we're fast, you know, we're a wealthy country. We love our gadgets in this country. Um, but, you know, online campaigning, you know, we are only a couple of years um, behind the US, less from a mobilization perspective and because of compulsory voting and more about messaging and giving, you know, trying to persuade people, convert people uh, from one side of the political aisle to another. So where does this result from last week and now leave the likes of the Palmer Party, the One Nation Party, do you think? We've spoken about, obviously, some of the gains made with the likes of the Greens. What about for that group? Where are they placed now? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question. Palmer, you know, a lot of rough estimates are there's $100 million spent there for, you know, not a lot to show for it. And, um, you know, some of the early readouts are that it, it was essentially an anti-vax movement and got a lot of its juice uh, from that, but that put a real cap on its reach and um, and, and hence its political impact. Uh, Pauline Hanson will probably retain her Senate seat, but it was not a great, um, a great election cycle for One Nation um, either. Uh, they've run in more seats, so... Um, so there are more candidates out there. Yeah. So I think their national vote share has gone up, but then, but it hasn't. Other than I think uh, Hanson's Senate seat, um, and they may they might get one in Victoria. We'll just wait and see. But um, but um, look, it was a. I think it was this. You know, I go right back to the earlier point about Australia wanting the government to do things. 
we wanted the government, and the government did. And Morrison and the coalition numbers did very, very well in the first 18 months of COVID. Um, that was what a government looking after its people looked like. It was world class um, and job keeper. And then when it became obvious that they'd blown it with respect to uh, getting vaccines out and we were going to be very slow to reopen, um, uh, voters came back with a vengeance. Um, that, uh, people were very down on the coalition government in the very, just immediately after the last election, after the bushfires. Yep. Um, thought that, so I think it's, it's a, the last three years have taught us government matters. Um, we want government, you know, it's not America where we want government out of our lives. Australians want government in their lives. They just want it done better and confidently and, and with integrity, I think would be the, the themes. And so that in that environment, there's sort of it's almost an anti-establishment message, certainly from Palmer, uh, and and a little less coherent at times from One Nation. Uh, some of those the grievances that you know powered um, Pauline Hanson into national prominence now 1996 um, is when she first breaks out. Yeah. Um, um, that you know there's a lot of water under the bridge, and and I and I can't help but think just on climate. Um, so true, I think, around issues like, particularly for Hanson, uh, uh, race and the idea that there's this Aboriginal industry. You know, remember the, the quite provocative, you know, campaigns she ran in, in 96, 98, yeah. um, 01. I just wonder, again, is this an issue where the country is, is I think, less so than climate? But maybe we're moving on as well, that that we are going to do something about uh, Indigenous recognition in the parliament. So what about now the election's over? What's your experience in terms of the people who were quite engaged last week and looking forward to voting, if they indeed did, indeed did wait to vote on Saturday or voted in the weeks before, but they get engaged, they look forward to voting. What happens now for them? Do they switch off for a while now? The challenge for some of these community-based campaigns, the so-called teal candidates, is to not have that be sand through their hands. All that energy and all that community organisation, their challenge is to keep that energy alive or, or at least sufficiently alive that it can be reactivated, uh, presuming they want to get re-elected uh, when it, whenever the next election comes. Um, but for most people, you're right, attention really peaks around the time of a federal election. And, and for most people, perhaps not uh, you and me or, or listeners to this podcast, but politics is not front of mind. There's so many other things, the kids, the house, yep. um, the car needs repair, um, footy teams are doing well or not, um, <laughs> the kids' sport, um, you know, the pet needs, is, needs an, you know, needs its shots or something. You know, there's, yeah. there's, are we, are, where are we going on holidays yep. and, or sick relative? You know, just life, right? All that yeah. stuff is, is the great stuff of life. <laughs> and, 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 and so, but what's going to happen? We're about to get a rude shock, by the way. On July 1, power prices across Australia are going to really bump up. Um, significantly. As, yeah. And um, I know uh, from talking to both candidates and strategic advisors to candidates on you know, all sides and all quarters of Australian politics, um, people are bracing in the political system. Um, and that's going to send a big message out to Australian households about, huh, um, uh, do they know what they're doing, uh, yep. this new government? 
what can they do to cushion this and, and, and where are we going? And you watch, it'll be, I think, the first foray, um, the first real opening salvo. Um, and I can imagine, you know, uh, Peter Dutton and the, and the opposition are rehearsing their lines already and the holding lines from the government, you know, um, uh, this, this is actually why we need to go harder on renewables in the transition. It's our dependence on fossil fuels. We're exporting fossil fuels, but we're importing global prices. All of those arguments are yep. about to come raining down on us and will make a profound intrusion into ordinary people's consciousness. Why? Because they're going to feel it in the hip pocket in the middle of winter. Um, um, particularly perhaps something that doesn't affect people as much in Queensland, perhaps, but, uh, but, but will, right? Because mm. the, the cost of juice is, is, is just going up. Coming on the back of you know, inflation um, right throughout the Australian economy. Uh, so, so politics isn't going away because the issues that are animating Australian politics right now uh, are quintessentially hip pocket issues and, and you won't be able to ignore uh, both households or politicians for that reason. Well, as you said, the likes of you and I will look forward to seeing how that discussion goes. It won't be front of mind for some others, but it will be fascinating, as it always is. And we really appreciate you coming on, Simon, to share some of your knowledge with us. I'm sure we could talk for a long time about different <laughs> things you've found in the last uh, few weeks and so forth. But we really appreciate your time and look forward to staying in touch as, uh, as the months and years go on. Thank you very much for joining us. Michael, a pleasure. Uh, you've been a great friend over my time back in Australia. I so appreciate the opportunity to, to share some thoughts with you this afternoon. Terrific. Thanks to you, Simon. Talk soon.